Welcome, welcome, welcome back to week 12 of Classic City Crime Season 1 Journey of Seeking Justice for Tara Baker. I'm Cameron J. I'll be frank, this season will not stop until I believe justice has been served, or at least the foundation for justice has been paved. Sorry we're a little late on this episode, but Thursdays are still for Classic City Crime. It's been a week here at the podcast, growing many new listeners from around the country and even having more people speak out about who and what they know surrounding the events leading up to Tara's murder on Vaughn Drive in 2001. Kevin Baker, Tara's youngest brother, who's my new friend, was in Athens this week, and we actually took a journey over to Fawn Drive, a place he's never been, and I'll tell you a little bit more about our encounter later in this episode, but if you haven't already, be sure to catch our live stream Q&A on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash classiccitycrime, to see some of Kevin's answers and emotions in real time, on camera. It's always nice to finally put a name with the face, right? And it was nice for me to finally meet Kevin in person. Anyway, I decided to title this episode, The Web Grows. Why? Because that's what I feel like we're dealing with here, a weaving web of crossing threads and confusing leads that somehow each make sense in their own little ways. Yet as the web grows, there are some who get caught in the truth, like a poor bug in a spider's web. And that, my friends, is the goal to finally catch in the web of truth the person responsible for taking Tara's life away from her dear mother and her family. All right, well, enough of my attempt at a good analogy, but we do have a lot of ground to cover this week. In fact, that's what I promised you as we closed out episode 11. So buckle up and get out your pen and paper or your notes app, whichever one suits your fancy. This is going to be an episode filled with not only suspect updates, but new expert opinions on the crime scene and what exactly happened to Tara and what it tells us about the person who could have been involved. This is Classic City Crime. I'm Cameron J. One thing you've been on the edge of your seat about the last few weeks is this laptop, right? And where could it have possibly gone? As you know, it was the only thing stolen from Tara's home that day. None of the jewelry that was sitting out was stolen. The unlocked car wasn't stolen. Nothing within it gone. Just this laptop and the booklet that went along with it to explain how to use it and how to set it up. Early on in this case, I had a man reach out to me claiming to know where the laptop was shortly after Tara's death. There was something in my gut that told me he had something worth listening to, and that he was worth believing too. This week we interviewed over text, <laughs> something new this day and time I guess, but I wanted to be a little less boring with this, so I've asked my co-producer to stand in and read the responses that he sent me as we were having our conversation. And I do believe that this new information will put this case in a bit of a new light for you. Okay, so how did you come into contact with the laptop now? Why was it brought to you? At the time I was selling drugs... The laptop was brought to me to try to sell or trade for drugs. Okay, and who brought you the laptop, and how did you know it was Tara's? The aunt. I wouldn't buy it because he did not know the login. I didn't think much of it. I just didn't buy it. 
But after the media coverage of the murder, I remember seeing the name Tara on the login screen. Interesting. Did he tell you how he got it or any background information or no? All he said was a friend gave it to him. And where were you when he brought the laptop to you? River Mill Apartments. Did he say it was a white friend, a black friend, a girl, a boy who gave him this? Any description about the person? No, just a friend. Okay, and so he never said anything about being involved in Tara's murder, just the laptop? No, he didn't admit to me about the murder. He just had her laptop. Does the name ring a bell? Nope. Now, at this point in our conversation, I took a little bit of a chance and I sent him a photo of possible suspect number three that was taken in 2000. And here's what he had to say. What about this man? He looks familiar. Okay, he was an attorney in town back then. Yes, I think I do know him. Hmm, interesting. I know the aunt uh, was big into breaking into houses and cars to support his habit. Interesting. And anything else I haven't asked you that you think is important? Was he the violent type? I heard stories of him robbing people with a knife before. He was a crazy type back then. Do you remember what color the laptop was? And also, do you think you could put me in contact with someone who knew him? Not right off. Like I said before, it's been a long time. A lot of details that night stuck with me, but a lot didn't. Something about it all was very uneasy with me after the murder happened. I don't know a lot of people he hung out with. I lost touch with him for a reason after this on purpose. Yeah, he became a rapper. Do you know where he lived at the time? He was homeless back then, I think. Okay, and do any of these names ring a bell? Not right off. Okay, did you ever go to police and what did they say? I did. They listened to what I had to say, and I don't know what happened after that. So, no more contact or follow-up from police after that? Nope. Hmm. Also, how long after her death did he bring this laptop to you? He brought me the laptop before the media coverage of the death. So it had to be not long after. I connected the laptop and death after seeing it all over the news and remembering the name Tara on the login screen. I bet you were shocked. Shocked, and like I said, I started feeling very uneasy. You know, I don't know if he killed her, but maybe. Uh, I do know that he might have had the laptop. I don't care. I knew him back then, and I wouldn't put nothing past him. Well, thank you for answering my questions, and if you think of anything else, let me know. Interestingly, I've had another suspect reach out about this ant person saying that they were at the Globe drinking one night and he was intoxicated and started bragging about his involvement in something to do with Tara Baker. I'll have more on this information soon. It's also interesting that years after Tara's death, while standing at the arch in her memory, Miss Virginia was approached by someone walking down the street saying, We all know the ant had something to do with it. This is really interesting, right? So if you have any information on this laptop or ant or anything that you would like to contribute to the conversation, you know what to do. Email us at ClassicCityCrime at gmail.com. Now you'll recall that we started out this journey looking at some of the possible suspects that the media and police leaked back in 2001. 
The first you'll recall was the classmate, the odd, weird guy that tried to impress Tara and made other women feel just uncomfortable. Well, not only have I spoken to his alibi from the time, but she is still thinking on whether or not she wants to speak on the podcast. I was, however, able to learn more about the classmate's alibi from a few other sources, both within the police department and within the law school. The classmate was with this woman the night before the fire and spent the night at her home, leaving the next morning around 6 to 6.30 a.m. to get ready for class. I guess this does leave time for him to travel to Tara's home and do something, but it doesn't seem very likely, right? I think once you hear from this new source his alibi soon, you'll be able to lean more in that direction too, but we'll see what you think. That being said, there is still a chance he could have been involved, so I'm looking forward to hearing from this suspect directly soon. Now another source came forward about Suspect One, a fellow classmate who, like others you've heard from, remembers being put off by him. There's one interesting thing that she came forward with, though, that I had not heard yet. She said that after Tara's death, she recalls a specific party in which the classmate approached her and cornered her, repeating, I didn't kill her, I didn't kill her. Was he telling the truth, or was he not? What do you think? Moving right along, suspect number two. The boyfriend is doing well. We briefly spoke this week, and he says he's been feeling better after the shock of speaking out so boldly nearly 20 years after Tara was killed. There are no other updates here, but he is well, and he hopes to meet with me in person soon. And now to the suspect you've all been chattering about online, possible suspect number three, the attorney Tara worked with at Fortson, Bentley, and Griffin in downtown Athens. I've been reached out to and contacted by several different employees, mainly women, to find out exactly what was going on in the firm around the time Tara was killed. One woman said she remembers a sweet detail about Tara, that Tara always wanted ranch with everything that she ordered. She also remembers Tara being invested in everyone's life and their family and asking people how their life was going. You know, this is something that we've heard echoed time and time again. What this woman also remembers, though, is a lot of speculation at the firm after Tara died. She said she remembers that on the day it happened, the police chief, Lumpkin, called and came by the office. She knew something was going on, but did not know what. The source reports she remembers they were looking for someone to identify Tara's body, such as the office manager. But then, of course, we know her boyfriend ultimately did that. Another source has come forward who says she knew Tara as, quote, a professional friend. She said Tara was as good as you've heard, that she would often be the one complaining to Tara about the lawyers, not the other way around. She recalls the attorney in question being one of the, quote, cute ones in a sea of old men, and she admits having a low-key crush on the attorney who acted like one of the staff members, fun, kidding around, not taking on the attitude or the stature of the other attorneys. She said he seemed like an eligible bachelor and that she did not learn about his marriage until much later. As much as he tried to fit in, she said, though, it all felt weird to her that she didn't feel flattered by his behavior, but felt put off. She said his relationship towards Tara Baker, though, was odd, that he felt unusually close to her. This source says she remembers the day Tara died, raining, drizzling, January day, cold probably. She heard fire trucks leaving from the fire station downtown around lunch, and now knows it was probably in response to the fire at her co-worker's home. 
Now here's where her story gets interesting. She says around 3 p.m., the lawyer she worked for suggested she leave early, which never happened. He put his arm around her, patted her, and said, stay safe. Now this was a moment she knew something was off, and later that night, as she sat in her east side home, not far from Tara's, the office manager of Fortson, Bentley, and Griffin called to let her know of what happened to her coworker Tara. She says now looking back, she wonders why her boss let her go so early. Remember, the Bakers had no knowledge of their daughter's possible involvement in a fire until much later in the afternoon, January 19th. So it's become quite clear to me from several sources that news might have traveled faster to the firm than it did to the Baker family. And after Tara's death, she and others say they felt silenced by certain individuals within the firm both before and after Tara's death. For example, let's say someone in the firm is going to go away for 45 days to get sober. They were told not to talk about it, not to mention it, not to ask questions, and they were reminded of their privilege to work there and that termination was always on the table. The source also said that she was told by the firm that if they were approached by police who, get this, often occupied the main floor conference room at the firm, that if she were questioned or approached by them to speak to their supervisory attorney first. She confirms another thing other women have said that I've talked to in the last few weeks, that they've all had the same thought for years that the young attorney might have been involved, they were all just too afraid to say something, to talk to one another. One thing that's also a common theme and that I think is really important to stress is that these people are talking about how they felt in and around 2001, not now. They all also agree on this. When this attorney left town in the middle of the night, there was no party, no going away celebration like usual, no major mention of it, this was different. He was just gone. And here's where we have some new breaking information. Fortson, Bentley, and Griffin is the name of the law firm you've heard mentioned here, and I'm super grateful that they have chosen to speak out directly to the podcast. They have issued the following statement to me just this week. Quote, Tara Baker worked with our law firm from June 1999 until she started law school at the University of Georgia in August of 2000. She was smart, kind, hardworking, and a pleasure to be around. Tara made many close friends with her co-workers here at Fortson, Bentley, and Griffin, and her death is still a very difficult subject for many of our attorneys and staff. Our firm will do everything that we can to help, including providing any information that may be relevant to the case. In episode 10 of your podcast, you identified a potential suspect in Tara's murder who practiced law at our firm. We can confirm that this individual was a lawyer at our firm for 16 months, from January 1, 1999 to June 29, 2001. He graduated from University of Virginia School of Law, practiced at King & Spalding in Atlanta, Georgia, prior to moving to our firm as an associate in February of 1999. No one at our firm has had any contact with him since his departure, end quote. Thank you, Fortson, Bentley, and Griffin, for speaking out in this journey to find justice for your friend, for your colleague, Tara Louise Baker. I appreciate and welcome any help you can provide in this quest to find the truth. And now, moving on to updates on the theory of suspect number four, that a maintenance man or someone connected to the property might have been involved. 
someone with keys who would have had an eye on the unit who wouldn't have the need to break in. I am actively working to speak with those who worked at the property at the time, and we are making progress in that regard, so please stay tuned. I wanted to clarify one thing. While the property was built and managed by Larry Hancock and Hancock Properties in 1996, and was still under their direction in 2001, the property is now under the direction of a new property management company. I mentioned earlier that Kevin and I went to Deer Park on Monday to see Tara's old home, which is now the property's leasing office. We knocked on the door and we were not so kindly greeted by a property manager, who I get it, probably gets knocks like this all the time by university students doing projects on Tara's case. I reminded her that this knock was different though, that Kevin was Tara's brother. And then she said we could take a look around and things seemed to take a different tune. We walked around Tara's home, noting entryways and exits, windows. We walked around back to see just how close and visible all the surrounding homes were. We also went to the home down the street where another fire and robbery occurred, which you heard about last week. And then, just as we were headed to our car, a patrol car rounds the corner saying we scared some folks with where we parked the car. You know, on a non-yellow curb in a residential area. All was fine, though, and the officers moved along, and we moved our car, and we were on our way. Either way, it was still an odd occurrence, and one thing's for certain. The community itself just feels odd. It was an overcast day, much like the one in January, minus it was a little humid. It was midday, and not a soul really was to be seen. No one out in their yard, no one sitting on their porch, hardly any cars in or out. The people here just seem to be private, and after all these years and what's happened, I don't blame them. Now that we've gone through all of these theories and know more about the lives of each person involved here, yes, I know much more than is broadcast here for case integrity reasons, we will soon be reuniting with forensic psychologist Dr. Michael Parati for an exclusive profile episode coming up soon. When we come back, a forensic pathologist adds to our investigation. In the last few weeks, I've uncovered a lot more information on just what happened to Tara Louise Baker in her room back in 2001. Well, as much as one can, with a death certificate released and delayed for 10 years, and an autopsy report still not available to the family or the public due to the case's ongoing status. Tara did meet a tragic end, one that no one can truly fathom, and I think it's time we understand it better together, especially now that we have a profile put together of people who could possibly be involved. So let's take a few deep breaths, no sponsorship break this week, just a moment to breathe. Dr. Tim Gallagher is here. We'll be right back. Dr. Tim Gallagher has been lecturing on forensic science and forensic medicine for over 10 years. He's been a guest on The Nancy Grace Show, Primetime Justice, The First 48 Hours, Dateline NBC, and America's Most Wanted, and has been an on-set consultant for various crime and forensic television programs. So we're super excited to have him here with Classic City Crime. He's lectured for medical schools, law schools, and conferences throughout the United States, Western Europe, the Caribbean, Central America, 
America and China. He's presented original works at the American Academy of Forensic Sciences and the National Association of Medical Examiners annual conferences. After completing his Master's of Health Services Administration and Medical Doctorate, he completed residency training in Birmingham, Alabama, and was accepted as a Forensic Pathology Fellow in Miami, Florida at the Miami-Dade County Medical Examiner's Department. In his service as an Associate Medical Examiner for District 1, 7, 11, and 24 in the state of Florida, he has attended hundreds of death scenes and testified at more than 100 courtroom trials. Now, I do want to warn you, some of the things you'll hear Dr. Gallagher mention are a little graphic, so keep that in mind as we move forward. One thing I wanted to go back and ask him that we talked with our arson investigator, Tom, early about was, how badly does a fire really damage a body, and can you find any evidence from it? Yeah, ironically, you know, you would think that when a body is involved in a fire, that a lot of the evidence is incinerated. Uh, in the fire. And that's not always the case. Typically, um, more evidence is generated, you know, by the fire. So, you know, keeping in mind that a lot of the times when a body is in a building that is on fire, the body is on the floor mm-hmm. and the fire is above the body. So, a lot of the body is singed on the outside, but the interior portions of the body, the organs, the muscles, are still very well preserved. Um, And based on the autopsy, we can determine if the victim was breathing during the fire or not breathing during the fire. That is to say, uh, if they had died uh, before the fire or died as a result of the fire. Well, you would look in the uh, upper airway, basically, the tongue, the trachea, and um, the bronchi, and you would see large deposits of the black soot and smoke. And even sometimes, because those gases are hot, you would see a a thermal defect or a burn that Mm. is in their upper airway. And uh, that is active respiration during the fire event. So uh, that that would indicate that they were alive during the fire. Now, one thing I do want to clarify here from all of the reports I've seen, Tara was dead before the fire. Now, another thing, Dr. Gallagher and I actually talked today, and that's another reason this episode was a little bit late. I wanted to ask him if damage to the hyoid bone, as reported in Tara's case, was consistent with manual strangulation or strangulation by ligature. And he actually says that it's usually consistent with manual strangulation, but he does admit that there are some cases he's seen where a ligature strangulation has led to that fracture. So just an interesting point there for you to ponder. Yes, you know, if there was uh, a manual strangulation, or in this case it's a strangulation by ligature, there is going to be evidence of that. The tissue in the neck Uh, develops hemorrhages, which is bleeding within the uh, muscle itself that that comprises the neck. And uh, it'll, a pattern of bleeding would be in a linear line that would be consistent with where the cord strangled the person. Finally, I've asked him, does he believe that an exhumation could help in Tara's case, even with all the time that's passed? And here's what he had to say. Generally, 
the likelihood that we're talking about 23 years, is that right? 20, uh, 20 in January. Right, so 20 years. So generally, the, the likelihood is not good to obtain a complete DNA profile from the material under the nail. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I say that, you know, with this in mind, that a partial DNA profile may be able to be obtained, you know, if there's foreign DNA under her nails. And now this partial a DNA profile could eliminate or include a, a certain suspect, uh, I mean, a certain person in the, in the list of suspects. DNA technology 20 years ago uh, has improved vastly, you know, to where it is today. And if uh, it is believed that they can get a foreign DNA sample from her fingernail bed, then I think it's worthwhile to pursue that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, via exhumation and sample collection. And I'll let you in on this one thing. I did ask Miss Virginia as hard as it was, would she ever consider exhuming Tara's body? And her answer was this. If I believed it would uncover something of value, yes. Thanks again to Dr. Gallagher and to all of the sources who have helped me bring you up to speed on the types of leads we are getting every single day, quite literally. Now for some new bombshell information. Another suspect has come to light, one that has my head once again spinning with possibilities and searching for the truth. And did you know there is a man who swears he knows who killed Tara? I found him, and we're hoping to talk. The only barrier? He lives in a Georgia state prison. Next time on Classic City Crime, I'm Cameron J. Classic City Crime is hosted by me, Cameron J., and co-produced by Kyle Kazaya. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Classic City Crime. You can visit us on the web at ClassicCityCrime.com. For story tips, for information on the Tara Baker story, or to contact us, get in contact at ClassicCityCrime at gmail.com, or you can always call our tip line, 706-534-0025. See you next week.